welcome to the Evolvepreneur AI Advantage Show, and I'm your host, Richard Ray. My mission is to help entrepreneurs understand AI and use it to their advantage. Join me today where we dig deep with our guests and get you the best concepts and strategies. Today's special guest is Blake Birch. Blake is the co-founder and CEO of Shipyard, the quickest way for data teams to launch, monitor, and share workflows. Formerly the head of data for PMG, he also led the end-to-end data strategy for brands like OpenTable, Trav Velocity, and Gap, where he helped them scale marketing efforts through algorithms and automation. Today, we're talking about using AI to automate data workflows. Blake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Now, Blake, I always like to ask my guests, where in the world are you? I'm currently located out of Austin, Texas. Fantastic. A hotbed of activity I hear these days. So a great And point. it is hot. That is for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're going through that incredible heat wave right now. I think it's 110 pretty much every day. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Well, being in Australia, we get, we're used to the heat as well. Yes. Okay. So let's get into it. So can you first kind of baseline for us what data workflows are, just to give our audience a little bit of a kind of a, a understanding? Yeah, so really simple examples of data workflows are just moving data in between different systems that you have. It could be that you're using support tools like Intercom or CRM systems like HubSpot, and you're trying to move that data into your data warehouse. It could also be the opposite direction, uh, where you're trying to move something from your data warehouse like Snowflake Mm -hmm. or BigQuery and move it back into your SaaS tools. Uh, But in general, getting access to data uh, is quite difficult. Uh, It Mm -hmm. takes a lot of uh, manpower to make sure that you can get um, everything in place and make sure that it's running consistently every single day, that data is being loaded in effectively, uh, and that it's being transformed so it's clean and accessible for uh, end business users that you have on your side. So a lot of it then is going to be the map of knowing where all this data is and getting it to the right place at the right time. That's absolutely correct. And an area that I am pretty passionate about on my side is trying to figure out, like, once you have access to the data, how can you mm-hmm. use it for more uh, in the business? How can you go beyond dashboards to mm-hmm. actively um, automate internal business processes with the data that you have on hand? So. Interesting. And within that process, how do you make sure that people are seeing the right amount of data? Because one of the things I like to quote is a line I heard years ago, which is the best way to teach somebody nothing is to show them everything. How do you make sure you're getting the right information and the right amounts of information to the right people? I think a lot of it is scoping the problem beforehand, trying to figure out what exactly is it that you're trying to solve? What exactly are you wanting to look into uh, Mm -hmm. in the business and figuring out what are the minimum amount of data points that you can give access to that will be able to help you achieve whatever that goal is. If you can effectively scope things and create that sort of like minimum viable data product, then Mm -hmm. it prevents you from having just data overload where you're trying to give access to all the data and hope that someone will find some useful thing for it. And that sounds like classic design with the whole kind of MVP approach that you give people exactly what they need to do what they need to do. Give them some extra if they need it. But the reality is work out all they need to do for the job and nothing more to start off with. Yeah. Absolutely. It's all about trying to figure out what what is the business value that you can achieve mm-hmm. first and then using that to back into the data that needs to be grabbed and provided uh, for the business. It's just making sure that you're in constant communication with stakeholders so that you're not providing irrelevant data or excess data. And not letting people go down rabbit holes. Yes, absolutely. So you've worked with some amazing companies, which I mentioned in the intro. 
what sort of messaging are you getting from this level of company about AI? Are they embracing it? Are they really running with it? I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out how to effectively use uh, AI. Um, there, there's a lot of hype in the area right now, uh, but mm -hmm. people aren't really quite sure where to fit it in uh, to their day-to-day -day workflow. And so we, we look at things from a data perspective. We see people exploring it from the, the aspect of maybe trying to like ask a question of a AI chatbot and providing it with the structure of their database. What call do I have access to? What are the names of the tables? And then from that, seeing if it can generate like the right sort of SQL queries so that they can actually read the data in uh, without necessarily having to write any code. I see a lot of people focusing on things from uh, that aspect. Uh, I also see people trying to uh, provide entire data sets and say, can you provide an interesting insight? Um, and that has differing success uh, where I, I, I kind of find from my own experience of working with a lot of AI tools is that um, they're not as good about getting things right all the time. They're good at being directional. And so if they're able to give you a head start and you can kind of have a human in the, in the loop process where you can verify that things are uh, working the way you expected, that they are uh, actually uh, correct and accurate, um, then that's usually where the most uh, use comes from uh, for AI. So have you seen any examples where people have seen AI as a silver bullet and imagined it's got too much capability? I think the the super billet bullet right now is all about almost providing superhuman powers for internal employees. And to, to give you an example here um, of something that we just helped the customer out with, um, our platform has like low code templates that allow you to move data between those systems. And so they had reports that lived in their dashboards that were in Tableau, and they wanted to take these reports and deliver them out to all of their clients, like hundreds of uh, uh, clients, uh, but the data didn't look exactly like they wanted it to. Um, mm -hmm. The people that were accessing the data didn't necessarily have the technical skills, but they knew exactly what they wanted that in file to look like. And so mm -hmm. we worked with them to figure out how you could use things like uh, the ChatGPT code interpreter mm -hmm. to upload a file, uh, a sample data, uh, and say, hey, I want you to pivot out the data based on this one column. I want you to rename all these columns to uh, be this specific name and to be in this specific order. And then by going through that entire process, eventually it was able to spit out what the uh, file should look like. And they said, yep, that looks right. And then they're able to take the code that was generated there and plug it in uh, to our platform directly uh, and then have that process run on a daily basis. And so giving a non-technical person the ability to transform and manipulate their data without having to write a lick of code just by providing requirements, that's a superpower. <laughs> and that's where we're seeing a lot of people gaining more ability to to do more with their data without necessarily having to have those technical skills. So that's a really interesting point that you've made there. And one of the, my personal favorites about AI is enabling people with knowledge to grab hold and get things done that they couldn't have done in the past. It's now making life easier for them so they can really focus on the end result. Yeah, I, I think that's one thing that is 
still untapped a little bit. And mm -hmm. the, the reason why for a lot of organizations all comes down to like data privacy and security. How mm -hmm. do you effectively train people in the organization to use these tools to manipulate data while also training them, hey, don't ever give real data away to this system. Make sure that it is fake sample data. It's slightly changed uh, along mm -hmm. the way. Like doing that level of training is difficult. And so I know even from talking to larger brands that some are trying to build in-house systems uh, like ChatGPT, but f just for themselves. Um, yeah. That isn't necessarily using these external uh, these external systems, they, they are custom building with their own models that they can have control over seeing what data is input to them or not. So based on that, do you see, you know, this rash of models that, you know, are, are lesser being, so to speak, you know, everybody thinks, oh no, I've got to make my own model and they just won't be as good. And so they're not going to get good results out of them. I do see that potentially being a concern. Why I, I I'm a little bit more in the core of just trying to effectively train people, hey, never mm -hmm. upload real data, but here's how you can like take the data, make it a sample, uh, make it something to where you're not going to be giving away something proprietary, but you are going to be able to speed up the delivery process of what it takes to transform or do something uh, against that data. I, I, I think it's a little bit of a losing battle trying to fight against some of these companies that have billions of dollars to funnel into uh, models and even the ones that do um, uh, are not always as fully baked as some of the uh, other uh, models that are out there. Uh, things like uh, Llama, uh, for instance. Uh, mm -hmm. I know it, it hasn't quite achieved the same performance that you can see with uh, different uh, open AI models. But not short of marketing behind it. Yeah, there's still plenty of marketing uh, behind those models, though. No, absolutely, absolutely. So one of the things I'm hearing you say, though, there is be careful about what information you're sharing with AI, especially if it's one of the external big names. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. And I, I, I think that would consistently be true. I know a lot of the larger enterprises are the most concerned uh, about some mm -hmm. of those things. Um, but I do think it's important since some of that data can actually be used for other training that you you try to make sure when you're solving a problem that you you provide the bare bones for what you're trying to achieve uh, alongside the like full requirements of what you need to uh, perform it on. And then whenever you have like the output Python or whatever it's generating for you, you then apply that on your own to the data that you know you have internally. Uh, and that's what we're seeing a lot of clients try to do on uh, our system, um, just because they're they're wanting to make sure that that data isn't actively getting sent uh, to that AI tool. Yeah, letting people's data out into the wild like that could be a little bit dangerous. I can see yes, that. Yes, absolutely could. So just on that one example that you gave for a moment, how much mm -hmm. time uh, would that have saved? You know, you've got the example where you've got you know smart people, but not with this particular skill set, but they know what they want. Mm -hmm. To get everything done, would you say it was a 50% saving in time, 90% time saving in time? What would you say? Honestly, I would say that it's probably at least two weeks of savings. We're talking about a small problem that mm. someone wouldn't be able to solve on their own, that they would have to be sending over to someone on the engineering team, uh, and they'd have to put in a ticket to like JIRA, and then you'd have to verify, oh, well, is the engineering team able to fit it into this current sprint, or does it need to be pushed down the road? And so mm -hmm. it's not a super labor-intensive activity, but trying to get it prioritized uh, in the organization when you're trying to 
have multiple parties collaborate just to solve this one problem. Um, it's much easier to solve the problem when the person that knows they have the problem and they know how they want to solve it is able to provide those requirements and get the final output uh, that they want on their side. So with that example there, you've actually given multiple benefits. Not only does the end customer get exactly what they need in a much shorter amount of time, but also the rest of the organization isn't getting weighed down with relatively mundane tasks for the you know, high, higher skilled uh, you know, technical parts of the team. Yeah, that, that's absolutely the case. And on the other hand, for people that are technical, like I, I have more of a technical background with mm -hmm. Python and SQL. And um, I've been really fascinated trying out everything related to the ChatGPT code interpreter because mm -hmm. I, I feel like it could accelerate my own ability to code. I don't have to run anything locally. And so like recently I built out a proof of concept where I was trying to say, hey, could we add something to our application that is uh, going to... Uh, take conversations from ChatGPT and parse that conversation for the code that needs to be run and just have it insert itself automatically uh, into our application. I was able to build out the entire proof of concept in, I don't know, six hours uh, uh, just by like breaking out what I wanted to do into multiple mm -hmm. different chunks, providing the requirements, and then stringing those uh, those different chunks of code that were generated um, together. And so something like that probably on my own would have taken 20 hours or so. And so it's a huge time saving for so me as well. It's a huge saving, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. About 70% saving there. I mean, that's, that's really impressive. And when you multiply that over other projects and you and the rest of the team get better at using these tools and the tools sharpen up a little bit even more as they are doing, it just gets Correct. better. Yeah, and that's where for our team, I actually set the the initiative at the beginning of the year that everything we do should start with AI uh, because mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what it's going to be used for, but I do know that it is going to enhance our productivity. It is going to make us faster, uh, and uh, we're reaping the rewards of that right now. Like people are finding super unique ways to figure out how to incorporate it into their workflow because when they're starting a new project, they're starting by like asking for ideas from the AI. Mm -hmm. They're starting by trying to ask like implementation strategy or code or anything else there. They're trying to see, well, instead of me doing this, can uh, the chatbot do it? And so that mm -hmm. that sort of mindset shift is just opening doors all over the place for us. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, the whole idea of initially being a Kickstarter and you know, giving people ideas that they may not have had before, that's an incredibly powerful part of AI. Yeah. Just on the code aspect of AI, you mentioned, you know, uh, the code interpreter side of things, mm -hmm. and I've, you know, seen some examples of code being written by AI now. What's your take on the quality of that code right now? I think the quality of the code is dependent on the quality of the requirements that you provide it. Um, in general, I haven't found too many use cases where the the end result is actively poor. But I, mm -hmm. I think the problem is I see a lot of people expecting perfection uh, initially, and I almost see the entire aspect of working with AI um, to be kind of this iterative process. It mirrors the development life cycle itself because mm -hmm. I provide the requirements. It comes back with something that looks like 
70% of what I asked for. And then I have to come up with a new thing to say, no, well, actually it needed to look like this. And well, that part was wrong. And then it comes back and provides uh, like another uh, script and it's still a little bit wrong. We're like 90% of the way there. And then we keep on iterating through that until finally there's a working product that does exactly what I expected from the beginning. And I probably could have gotten to that perfect product had I been better at like writing exactly what I wanted beforehand and preventing there from being any sort of ambiguity. But yeah. I do think that the end code you can get if you go through that entire iterative process is is pretty good um and it does exactly yeah. what you need to it's not going to be the best like well-structured code but at the end of the day i prefer something that gets the job done versus something that mm -hmm. is super cohesive and is gonna last forever and be in the right sort of like engineering structure and it sounds like you know the, the amount of time that you're saving again with that approach even though it's a variation of what you've been doing it anyway uh, it's just a case of getting it done. That iteration process is just bang, 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 way quicker. Yes, 100%. So the other part that you mentioned there, which I think is incredibly important, is getting the prompts, getting the commands right or the explanation into whatever AI system you're using mm -hmm. to develop the skills there, which is really about uh, kind of language skills. And you know, in our case, English language skills and making sure you're expressing it in the correct way. Yeah, I, I've kind of joked internally with some people that uh, w what we're looking at in the future is almost conversations as code. Like we mm -hmm. really have to try and figure out how do we structure things correctly in terms of like how we're asking for them to have yeah. that be translated uh, directly into the output code that does ultimately what we wanted it to. Okay, interesting. So can you give us some more examples of how you've used AI with data workflows with some of the customers that you've got? Yeah. So one other example that is um, uh, pretty relevant on our side is that we have quite a few customers that have been using us recently uh, for things like transcription, um, using services like OpenAI's Whisper. Um, mm -hmm. They might want to be trans, uh, transcribing multiple different videos that they have on their systems uh, and making sure that those transcriptions are continuously uploaded and sent to um, whatever service uh, that they're uploading videos on, whether it's uh, YouTube or Vimeo or anything else like that. So um, on our platform, um, what we've been able to help them out with is things like uh, being able to figure out what is all the data of like all the YouTube videos that you have on hand. What are all of their IDs? Do they have transcriptions or not yet? The next step would be something where you're trying to figure out which of those don't actively have transcripts. And if they don't actively have transcripts, then you can kick off a workflow that says for this ID, download the video. Once the video has been downloaded, run it through uh, the um, transcription uh, service through like OpenAI Whisper. And once that's done, then you can go and upload that file to any sort of storage service, or you can go and upload it back to the source uh, on YouTube. But we're seeing for some of those, and we've actually been like dogfooding this and testing it out ourselves as well. Once you have that transcript in place, well, you can use that transcript to then pass it through OpenAI services uh, again to maybe summarize it and create a blog post automatically off of those videos that is then connected um, uh, to those videos. Uh, you're able to use that to like repurpose and uh, like chunk things out and figure out like based on the script where are the sections and the timestamps that you might want to 
uh, cut down videos. And so a lot of that is still experimental and us trying to figure out how do we take it beyond just automating mm -hmm. the process of doing the transcription. But it's the fact that we can uh, now, which uh, is, is really kind of mind blown. It almost sounds like you're going in an object-orientated mode and you're building on the classes. You start off with that first class and then you kind of build on top of that. Yep, it's exactly like that. And so we're finding just multiple different types of use cases on our side. It's not just heavy-handed data that's in like HR or finance or anything mm -hmm. else like that. It's it's literally any data from any sort of system that you might be using and then incorporating AI into um, part of that workflow. And with the work that you're doing with your, with your customers, how are they changing their internal structure? Are they yeah, changing the work that people do? Are they uh, adding more people, laying people off? I mean, what's actually happening? How is it altering you know, the, almost the DNA of the organizations? So far, from the companies that we work with, it's not really altering the organizations in terms of them like laying off a bunch of individuals mm -hmm. or anything else like that. It's just changing... A little bit more of the job scope. I, I would say that uh, because we work with uh, a lot more like medium-sized brands uh, right now at Shipyard, that we we find that a lot of them are able to take on more roles or do mm -hmm. more responsibilities because they have been so greatly accelerated in their productivity from using AI and using services like Shipyard to build out those types of workflows. So very much a force multiplier for your end customers. Yes, absolutely. That's the end goal, to make it as quick as possible to move, manipulate, and act on that data. And how do you see AI changing the relationship between your customers and their end customers? That's a great question. Um, I think there is a potential risk of... Uh, uh, it making things less personal initially. I'm, I'm sure we've all heard the like articles where staff was laid off to uh, entirely outsource support to AI chatbots. That's not a great long-term strategy and it's not something that is, is very like humanizing. But I think there is a really big opportunity to um, make sure to, that we're aware of that type of issue that could happen where we make things less personal because of AI, mm -hmm. but instead figuring out how to make it more personal. What data do we have on hand about individuals that we could maybe incorporate into messages that are being sent via email or messages that people are uh, seeing on the website? And I, I think if we can really think about the human aspect and make sure that we are having empathy whenever we implement mm -hmm. uh, different AI systems that we can make sure that the relationship between company and customer is potentially even stronger and more humanized. So it sounds like there you, you maybe identified a potential pitfall of losing that human element, that mm -hmm. connection between uh, the, the companies and the customers if they push this too hard. Uh, would you say that that's the biggest potential uh, pitfall with AI or do you see any other major ones that are happening right now? The other pitfall that I see is is really the rise of mediocrity, where mm -hmm. if people are over-reliant on the product that generative AI, AI tools are able to make, um, then everyone's quality is just going to kind of be exactly the same. Um, it becomes a game of quantity over quality uh, to where your goal is to get things out as quickly and rapidly as possible, and they will kind of lose the the tone and uh the the real like brand identity uh, that you might be able to have uh, around uh, some of the content again this is more focused on the aspect of using generative ai for Absolutely. for text versus uh something like data um and so i could see a real rise in 
like homegrown content of uh, mm -hmm. like having uh, influencers or um, people in the space that uh, have strong followings, like building things on their own that are not with AI and that being a larger differentiator. And they supplement what they're building with like rapid fire content that's uh, made with AI. Um, it just other as good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it almost sounds a bit like, you know, there's the old Pixar movie, The Incredibles, and you've got the Batty Syndrome. And mm -hmm. you invent all these amazing tools and weapons. And he says, once everybody's super, nobody will be super. And it yep. sounds like that level of mediocrity could happen if people uh, let it. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case. Yeah, no, I think I agree with you there. I think the whole point of, you know, this harks back to the days of people just putting .com at the end of their business name and thinking it's suddenly going to make all the dollars fly in. It doesn't work like that. You've still got to put in the effort. Yeah. Even with AI, I would say that there... You, you, it's not a set it and forget it system. You'd still have to figure out how do we continuously improve this? How do we make mm -hmm. it better? How do we make the prompts better so that we can get yes. uh, uh, better outputs overall? So the prompt engineering side of it is going to be increasingly important going forward. Yeah, I think the prompt engineering will be important in another aspect that I haven't really seen touched on very much uh, in mm -hmm. the media right now that I kind of think of as AI ops is figuring out like, how can you break apart the the problem into like smaller chunks with better examples or better like mm -hmm. preceded live data that will help result in the output uh, being better. It's not as much like prompt engineering as much as it is like how do i structure this problem in the right order uh and with the the right models uh, across the board to get the best output makes complete sense so outside of your company and the customers that you've got who are you seeing that is doing ai well who do you think is heading in the right direction I think right now, um, especially in the uh, data space, uh, I've seen really good things from Hex. They are a cloud notebooking tool, um, and they make it really easy to be able to um, to code alongside AI and ask for suggestions and things that you might want changed. Um, I know there's tools like Replit in the uh, developer space that are doing very similar things, allowing you to um, kind of code very quickly and in line. Um, I, I would say that those are the types of things that like I typically keep uh, more uh, of an eye on uh, because mm -hmm. they actually start to get implemented into your workflow and they're things that make it easier to do the day-to-day -day work. I think a lot of companies right now are potentially trapped in making things that are more flashy and they look cool on the surface, but they're not actually something that you're going to use on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and I'm trying to be very mindful <laughs> of uh, avoiding uh, those types of uh, tools. No, I completely understand. So in everything that you've seen so far, what's that one piece of advice? that you'd like to give to anybody listening today uh, that you wish you maybe you'd had at the start or they should really take on board for moving forward? I think it's the thing that I mentioned earlier about making sure that you break down the problems into the smallest chunks possible and you string them all together rather than expecting it just to get the right answer from a large problem. When we mm -hmm. started trying to build out AI features for uh, Shipyard, we, we ended up in a situation where... Um, we were fine tuning a lot of the models and putting too much information into them. And ultimately like down the road that started to make things very brittle because we didn't break it apart into chunks and provide live information. So I would really advise people starting to think about how do you break the problem down into those chunks uh, so that you can work with AI more effectively. 
that makes complete sense. So where can people find you? And uh, do you have any exciting projects coming up in the near future? Yeah, um, you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, you should just be able to search for Blake Birch. And you can find our company, um, shipyardapp.com. And I would say uh, one of the more exciting things we have going on right now is uh, our uh, weekly newsletter um, for the data space called All Hands on Data. We always provide a lot of exciting articles there. Um, we have a bunch of things that we write ourselves, how we're trying to use AI, things we're figuring out how to do in the data space. So it's a, it's a great read. Fantastic. Well, Blake, thank you for your time today. That's been really interesting. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Richard. Well, that's a wrap on another awesome guest episode for the Evolpner AI Advantage Show. Just before you go, if you like this episode, we would be very grateful for a five-star review. Please also consider recommending the show to a friend or two. Make sure you subscribe for future episodes at AIadvantage.show right now. Until next time, I'm Richard Ray, and if you're an entrepreneur, get the AI Advantage today. Thank you.